Hey everyone, I'm Jana Panaritis, and this is the AgeWise Podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. We're working on a bunch of gripping new episodes for you, so this week's show is from the archives. About a year ago, I had the pleasure of speaking with former Wisconsin Governor Martin Schreiber, who spoke candidly about the pain of seeing his beloved wife, Elaine, take on a new persona after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. In today's show, you'll hear how both their lives changed, how Elaine's illness turned Marty into an Alzheimer's activist, and all about his book, My Two Elaines. I was so inspired by this conversation. I hope you are, too. Here's the show. Martin J. Schreiber has been a political office holder in Wisconsin for 16 years, elected three times as state senator and twice as lieutenant governor. In 1977, he became Wisconsin's 39th governor. These days, the former governor is a public figure of a different kind. He's Wisconsin's leading crusader for Alzheimer's caregivers. The disease, which is now the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, hit home when it was diagnosed in Schreiber's wife, Elaine. His new book, written with award-winning journalist Kathy Breitenbutcher, is called My Two Elaines, Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. Joining us today from Milwaukee is the former governor of Wisconsin, Martin J. Schreiber. I am so pleased and honored to welcome you to the show. Welcome. Well, thank you. It truly is an honor for me. I, I am grateful for the opportunity and just to have a chance to, to visit and talk. In your book, you refer to the woman who would become your wife as my first Elaine, and you wrote, which was so moving, quote, if it weren't for her, there wouldn't be me. Tell us more about your meeting to put this in context for folks who don't really know that much about you. Well, Elaine and I first met when we were freshmen in high school in 1954. And um, I saw her, and I knew immediately that she was the woman I wanted as my wife. And we dated uh, throughout the entire period of time and now have been married, I think, for some 56 years. And uh, that first Elaine was the wonderful woman who could cook, and we raised our family and and four children and 13 grandchildren and five great-grandchildren. We went through victories uh, at campaigns, and we went through losses but she never let me feel defeated. And with the diagnosis, this woman who I loved and who was my companion and my friend and and my lover was no longer that person. And this person who once was is no more. That in turn was the second Elaine. So when I'm not feeling sorry for myself, I say I'm very fortunate because I have a chance to love and be a friend of two Elaines And although they are not the same person, they are certainly the same body and certainly the same warm-hearted soul. In Elaine's Alzheimer's, you know, she asked many, many times the same question, you know, how did we meet? How did we meet? And I said, well, Elaine, when we were in, in high school freshmen, I saw you and I knew you wanted me. I know I wanted you for my wife and I, I knew that you would be the best for me. And I said, not only that, but I said, Elaine, if any boy got within 50 feet of you, I bopped him on the head. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, you're a BSer. And I said, Elaine, I said, that may be true. I may be a BSer. But I said, let's just keep that between you and me. <laughs> oh, no, she says, everyone already knows. So notwithstanding the fact that there are two Elaines and notwithstanding the fact that I had to let go of the first Elaine, 
to be a caregiver for my second Elaine, notwithstanding that we still have some moments of joy. And just the other day, we were having lunch, and she started to cry. And I says, what, what's wrong? And she's what well, she's, I'm beginning to love you more than I love my husband. Oh, wow. And what that meant to me was the fact that she was comfortable in her being and in her spirit. Mm-hmm. And she may not know exactly who I was, but she was at ease. And sometimes when we're together, now, and this is another little experience, when we're together, she's always concerned about her security. So she said, what will you keep me? I said, yes, I will keep you. How long will you keep me? I said, I said a billion years. I'll keep you a billion years. And then she looked so sad. I said, why are you sad? She said, I don't think I could take you for that long of a period of time. Wow. And so it's the second Elaine. And what I tried to do in the book was to help give a sense to people that are caregivers and friends and relatives of caregivers, tried to have them understand that if Alzheimer's is bad, worse than Alzheimer's is ignorance of the disease. And if you don't understand the impact of that disease and what it causes, if you don't understand that there is a completely different person with a broken brain whose life and world you've got to enter, that disease is even worse than one would ever, ever think. I ran across a saying, which I want to have as underscoring why I wrote the book and, mm-hmm. and tried to get across the points I did, and that is do not wait for the storm to pass but learn how to dance in the rain. And certainly any caregiver is not dancing. And in truth and reality, a caregiver is an extraordinary, wonderful hero. And there really is not much of a feeling for dancing. But the point is, if you can understand the disease, for example, you can't argue with Alzheimer's. If Elaine has five coats on and she tells me that she's cold, to argue from here until hell freezes over is not going to do her or me any good. So if she's cold, either I give her another jacket or I go through redirection and things end up better. If I argue with her and say, how can you possibly be cold? Well, you can't argue with Alzheimer's. And then also to understand that that the world is very small uh, and and immediate right in front of them. And so one day she asked me, how are my parents? And I said, well, Elaine, they're both dead. And what a mistake that was, because I could see on her face the disappointment and the sadness and the agony when she realized that she didn't properly say goodbye to her parents. Mm. And I promised I wouldn't do that again. So next time she asked me, how are my parents? Oh, they're wonderful. I said, they're, you know, at church and they're spending time with my parents. Oh, she said, that makes me so happy. Mm. And so that I call therapeutic fibbing. Right. And, and that is to, to try and enter uh, their world. And then also to try and and make sure that as a caregiver, you're not the one that's going to get in between the person with dementia and and whatever they think they have to do. And so if I would have thought about therapeutic fibbing and blaming someone else 56 years ago when I first got married, just imagine what kind of happy marriage we would have had. (laughs) Or if I would have thought about that when I was running for public office. Right. I like that you wrote it. Therapeutic fibbing is more palatable than lying, which is what people think politicians do most of the time. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, well... I want to go back for a moment, if we can, to her early diagnosis. I found it so fascinating that she was really active in her own care at first. She was diagnosed in 2007, is that correct? Yeah, just about that time. Yeah, and you wrote that she was active in her own care at first, swimming, etc. Tell us a little bit about her progress. 
how her awareness of it changed over time and how she changed over time. I, I, let, I, th- I thought those notes were really quite startling, the journal notes that she wrote. Yes, yes. The journals that you are referring to, uh, I found almost immediately before we were going to go to press to talk about the caregiver side. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, very fortunately, I found notes and diaries that she had kept almost from the time of, of, of first going to the doctor with the diagnosis. And Elaine tried to find out everything she could about the disease, about how you might keep it away and stop its progress. And so she, you know, went to the mind books uh, that you can buy at stores and and Sudoku and and crossword puzzles. And Mm -hmm. she did everything that she could. And as time went along, it's almost as if she would think that the more that she would read about it, it would lessen the impact of the disease or Mm. it would delay the disease's progress. And, And maybe it did. Now, learning about the diagnosis, there's just a couple things that I feel so strongly uh, should have been done. First of all, the medical profession has to understand that when there is a diagnosis of Alzheimer's, there are two patients, the caregiver as well as the person with dementia. Hmm. And when they made Elaine's diagnosis, I didn't have a clue about Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's and what should happen. All I knew that it was not good. And so point number one, I should have begun to understand the disease, to learn about it, so I would have been able to better care for Elaine. But then the next thing, I should have, I should have worked with greater effort to develop a bucket list so that we could enjoy some of the many mm-hmm. things that we could do together. And so anyone who all of a sudden has to face this diagnosis, don't rush to meet the future. Yeah. And uh, yeah. grab all of all of these moments as and when you can. Uh, horribly, the disease progresses. And what these notes did that Elaine wrote was just help me understand the absolute courage that it takes for a person with dementia to move forward, because the fear and the anxiety about what lies ahead. Their life is so uncertain. You know, if I don't know really what's going on, who's going to take care of me, and how will I survive? She was just so un- unbelievably courageous during that period of time and always gracious. And so as she would get lost driving or as she would misplace items around the house or as she would back out of the garage and scrape the side of the car mm-hmm. and you know misplace articles of clothing or forget to put on articles of clothing, you could see that disease take its progress. And yet there were things I didn't know soon enough. There were things that I learned too late. And as the disease progressed, my health declines significantly. Mm -hmm. And to any caregiver, I want to tell you why you need support and why you cannot do it alone. Because during this process, you see your loved one turning into someone who you've never met or seen before. And while you see that, you're in the process of grieving Mm -hmm. and you have anxiety and you have worry about what the future might hold. And then there's also depression. And then you begin to feel trapped because there is no way out, you think, and Mm -hmm. life closes in on you. And that, in my situation, led to some serious kinds of illness that they still don't know the cause of, except I do. I know it was grieving and depression and anxiety and the loss of my first Elaine. And so understanding that better helped me. Now, when I say if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of Alzheimer's is worse, ignorance of Alzheimer's by the medical profession, 
who doesn't sometimes understand there are two patients. Ignorance by health insurance companies who don't understand that if there is a caregiver that they have got to pay special attention to make sure that there is a sufficient backup because it's going to cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Right. Caregivers are more apt to die early. Caregivers are more apt to have higher medical bills and insurance costs. They're more apt to have a lack of productivity at work. They're more apt to have their retirement dissipate. They're more apt to have their savings disappear. And it's a tough kind of a thing. And so we need to make sure that there is a better understanding of, of Alzheimer's by bankers and by financial advisors and, and anyone really who comes in contact with that person We've, and, and also with the, with the caregivers. Alzheimer's I call not a chicken casserole disease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, for example, you fall and you break a, a leg, now you're laid up. Well, your friends and neighbors and relatives will bring you chicken casserole. If you go to the, and you have a heart transplant or some other type of issue and you're, you're recuperating, people will bring you a, ch- a chicken casserole. The challenge with Alzheimer's, because people don't really understand it, the challenge then is how do you make people understand it so they don't shy away? Because it's very natural for things that are brand new to people or things that are unknown to people, uh, they will shy away from and, and want to retreat to those things that they know the best. And that is the person who once was. Well, that person who once was is there no more. So then they're very much inclined, and you can't blame them, to seek other methods of companionship and friendship and so on. And you can't blame them. But we, we just have to understand more about that disease. Mm-hmm. There's a part of the book where you're talking about Elaine's objections to in-home help. I thought it was really interesting how you really struggled with taking care of her on your own and then it, sort of recognizing that you needed help. But then having her object to having help come into the home. Can you talk about why she objected and then your hiring strategy as time went on? Oh, well, I tell you, first of all, not only is Elaine gracious, but she's also proud. And um, I was going through this this illness. I was going through a series of tests and people would look at me and they said, boy, you sure need some rest and you need help. And so I tried to get in-home help. And she would have nothing to do with it. She would not allow another woman to be in the home. And I tried to say, I have a health problem and I need help. And we've got to get someone in the home. And she says, that's your problem. (laughs) She says, there's no woman going to come into my home no matter what. And so then I tried to say, okay, well, there's this new person moving into the neighborhood and she would like you to show her around so she can find out where the stores are and so forth. Well, That also was something Elaine wanted nothing to do with. And again, being a proud person, she did not want to give up her independence. Mm -hmm. And she did not want to have someone in the home that she thinks was directing where she went and when she went and so forth. So finally, I gave up on the home care idea and worked to develop daycare. Mm -hmm. And in working to develop daycare, she really didn't want too much to do with that until I hit on the idea of sharing with her that this is really continuing education. Uh, She has a master's degree in early childhood education. I said, this is something that's going to continue. We we got a notebook, and Mm -hmm. dutifully, we went to this daycare, and the people at the daycare center understood what was happening, and they went along with this. And what that did was not only give Elaine a break and have her get out of the house, but it also gave me a break. And it gave me a chance to gain a little bit more perspective. Now, I want to mention something else which caregivers have to understand. When I found out I couldn't do it anymore, I sought help from the Alzheimer's Association. Mm -hmm. Now, they have a 24-7 
hotline, and it's something that someone should write down. It's 800-272-3900, and 24-7 people can call up and, and ask. But uh, I, I mention that because they have been so helpful to me. So it got to the point where I knew Elaine and I could no longer live in the same house together. She was in need of more 24-7 nursing home care. I was getting dissipated in strength, both physically and, and mentally and emotionally. And so... And how far I, along was that? Account, how well, how far into it were you at that point? Okay, well, this was approximately two years ago. Oh, fair, um, fairly recently. And, and, okay. And, and, yeah. And so I met with a counselor. She says, what's troubling you? And I said, well... I said, I cannot see putting my wife, Elaine, in a nursing home, but I, I don't know what, I can't take it anymore. I can't see putting her in a nursing home, and the key word here for this discussion is putting. Mm-hmm. And the, the counselor looked at me, and she says, you are not putting Elaine anyplace. What you are doing is giving her an opportunity to be who she is now. And that struck a chord, mm-hmm. because I could no longer give her the opportunity to be who she is now. I did not have the patience. I didn't have the health. I didn't have the different type of recreational uh, activities. I didn't have the ability to give her the kind of hygiene that she needed. Mm-hmm. And so once I understood that I was giving Elaine a chance to be who she is now, it was not putting her into assisted living. It was giving her a chance to have the best opportunity to have some joy in her life. And mm-hmm. now she is less with anxiety she's more comforted. She told me that even now her parents are beginning to like me. And so uh, <laughs> it's, it, and now also what has happened in my life, I can be a better father. I can be a better grandfather and I can be a better neighbor. And, and my life has sort of changed. And I would never, ever want to say, okay, well, you know, I can have all of this good stuff. If Elaine has Alzheimer's, I would never, ever say that. Or if she would be in, in assisted living. But the point is that because it is the best place for her, I'm able now to do and help people that she loves and I love and to have happen what she would want to have happen. Mm-hmm. I know, Governor, that you visited these care facilities with your kids. For folks who are just kind of entering into this phase and wondering where to turn, can you offer folks some advice on what to look for in facilities and Give us a little sense of, of what you went through in terms of finding the right facility. The old adage, stone walls do not a prison make, is something I want to reverse. I don't think you look for the most modern or newly constructed. There could be all kinds of, of issues because they're just getting started. They haven't worked out some of the things that need to be worked out for it's a smooth provider of services. Or it could be even that, uh, that they do have things worked out so number one, do not judge a, a place by its newness. Then I would go on to say when you visit, you certainly want to observe what is happening in activities with other people in assisted living. You hopefully want to look at some of the rooms to find out the degree of housekeeping and, and get a sense of even if you stay for a meal or two so you can see how the staff reacts the residents as far as their feeding is concerned, but also during eating, there are other issues which arise, which it gives you a sense of how patient and understanding and caring the staff is towards these kinds of issues. 
and then also take a look at their activities mm-hmm. calendar mm-hmm. and see if there are things going on there. But then also go to that place when you anticipate you know, sometimes activity calendars are just a calendar without any real activity. So it's not an easy decision to make, that's for sure. This is going to sound a little trite, but how would you pick out a, a motel? If you had a certain amount of money, you would go look and say, well, how much does this uh, hotel or motel cost? And you'd say, well, let me look at the room. And you would look at the bathroom and you'd look at the quality of linens on the bed and, and the cleanliness and so forth. And you know, what kind of reaction does the person behind the desk have? And to boiling it down to simple form, uh, you're looking for a place that is safe and secure and clean and caring. Mm-hmm. So tell us, if you could, what it was like for you on that day that you took Elaine to the facility, how she reacted, and how it was for you to go back to an empty house. Well, if I ever had a feeling of being defeated, that was the day. I had been taking Elaine to her daycare, and we were going to, of course, make notes in her college-bound notebook and so forth. So the day came for us to go to the nursing home, and as we left our home, I walked out, and Elaine followed me, and the door was left open. And I could never have gone back and closed that door because it was just tough enough knowing Elaine wouldn't be coming back, much less closing the door. And for some reason or another... I had music on, and they were playing Danny Boy. Hmm. And I don't know if anyone here remembers, or maybe they should think about it next time they hear it, the second verse of Danny Boy. And that combination of events was heartbreaking. Now, it's heartbreaking when you lose your first Elaine. It's heartbreaking as your loved one continues the downward slide towards dementia. And this also may not be a good analogy. But... If we think about parents taking their four-year-old child to kindergarten and the four-year-old child doesn't want to stay there, you don't want to leave that child there, but you know that it's sort of the best thing that should be happening. Mm -hmm. So you bite your lip and you move along and understand that as miserable and unhappy as that may be, there are better things ahead, both for the loved one who is going to be living in assisted living and also for the caregiver because that could very well save the caregiver's life. That could very well give the caregiver a chance to to be, you know, a better father and a better friend and and a better grandparent. And so, yes, it was very painful. But what made a difference in my life was to understand that the first Elaine is no longer there, to understand that this is a completely different person. And uh, I had to then let go of the first Elaine. I had to understand that this new person is no more going to talk to me about how uh, we should be planning our future, about where we would be going on a vacation. Uh, No longer would we be going for bicycle rides together and, and so forth because it's a completely different person. Many people say, well, doesn't it hurt when your wife no longer recognizes you as her husband? Well, the answer is I dealt with that. I dealt with that when I let go of my first Elaine. And now I know that I am in love with a person who is quite different with a broken brain. And because of that, she's not going to maybe know who I am. Because of that, she may not know who the children are. But by the same token, she is going to understand that she has someone there who is, loves her and who is, is caring and who, who she can love back. 
Initially, you wrote this book as a, quote, man-to-man message. How do men handle Alzheimer's caregiving as opposed to women? Well, I wish I could be more proud of my sex, to tell you the truth. I think we really, (laughs) well, okay, let me talk about myself. I don't want to talk about other men. Okay. I was selfish, egotistical, self-centered, and I refused to ask for directions, so to speak. I thought I could do it myself. And not only that, but I was embarrassed. I felt awkward asking anyone for help. Mm-hmm. And so as Elaine was in, in early stages, uh, we would talk with friends and she would say something happened on a Thursday night, but it was a Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Well, Elaine, it was a sat. Well, what difference does it make? Why do you have to get into these arguments to prove who is right? And so I think if I would have been a real man right from the beginning, I would have sought help. I would have tried to better understand the disease. I would have known that I can make life better for Elaine if I would grasp for moments of joy because I better understood the fact that Elaine's world is that moment in front of her. And if I am trying to conduct business with her as if she was now, once again, my 55-year-old sweetheart wife, that is just completely impossible. So once I know that if I would enter her world, she would be happier and and more at ease and more relaxed. It made all the difference in the world. And again, I get back, rather than waiting for the storm to pass, to try and learn how to dance in the rain. And again, no caregiver dances, but any caregiver can better understand the disease, along with friends and relatives, to try and make life easier. Did anyone ever ask how you were doing, as opposed to Elaine, through all that? Sounds like you're being really hard on yourself. Well, what a, what a wonderful question, because it's such a, an important question. One of the things that comes out time and again as I, I visit with people, caregivers are not given the affirmation that they deserve. Caregivers are awesome people. They're heroes. And during the, the time Elaine was living at home with me, she was very good at hiding her uh, dementia when we were out with people. We would go out and she would, you know, sort of be involved in the conversation and people didn't notice any different. And by the time that the visit was over, by the time we were done visiting, I think the friends thought I was the one who had the problem. Interesting. And, and they would call up and say, well, Elaine is, is really doing good, yeah. good isn't she? Right. And so the people that read the book, who I lived this thing with, and, and I had them read advanced manuscripts and so forth, they said they had no idea what I was going through. Wow. And had I just asked them for a little bit of help, they could have been there to help me. And I regret that I didn't because, again, I'm pretty healthy. But I can tell you that that period of time that I went through in which I was trying to adjust to the disease, that period of time was a very, very difficult health period for me between hospitalizations and tests and different kinds of things that uh, maybe there was only one half of 1% chance of surviving the illness that they thought I had, which of course I didn't. But Hmm. there are just so many things that come into play in this disease that support is important. And anyone who is a friend of a caregiver or a relative, one of the things you can do is help give respite time. The Alzheimer's Association has a software program whereby, for example, if I would sign into this software program, I would list all of the things I need done. Elaine to the doctor, cut the lawn, shovel the snow, and so forth. Well, friends would see that and they say, oh, okay, Elaine needs to go to the doctor at 2 o'clock. On sa- okay, I'll sign up for that. Hmm. Or we hmm. need the snow shoveled. Well, what we're going to do is uh, you count on me for the shoveling of the snow. 
And one other part, which was just as amazing to me, and that is I was at a um, opening of a PBS special on Alzheimer's. And when I was on a panel and we discussed that program after, after that viewing was, was completed, one of the questions came from a male caregiver. And he said, how do I handle it when my friends and my neighbors, they seem to shun us? What should I do? And my first response was, well, you know, try and have them cope, learn, and survive and teach them, you know, about this. And then I began to think of some of my friends and neighbors, and it, it would be a tough sell to do that unless they're very close and very concerned. Right. But then my mind, my mind clicked forward a few times and also clicked into reverse over my experience since Elaine's diagnosis. And what has happened to me is that there have been experiences of joy both with Elaine in the simplicity of life, moments of joy where I've been able to have other people touch my life and I've been able to touch other people's lives, the kinds of experiences that I would have never had in the sharing of life's moments if Elaine would be well. Now, I would never suggest in a million years that I would want to, you know, exchange one for another. But the fact of the matter is, Rather than waiting for the storm to pass, learn how to dance in the rain. And one of the ways of dancing in the rain is to connect with other caregivers and right. connect with the people who are concerned and who can bring you some assistance in, in many ways. And that sort of helps and opens up an, an additional factor in life. And I get to the point once more that a person cannot, should not do it alone. And if they are, I will be very blunt. I will call them fools. And I will say that they are doing a disservice to their loved one with dementia, but they're also doing a great disservice to themselves. Mm -hmm. Governor, was there any part of your political life that prepared you for this? No, nothing. The point is that Alzheimer's is so final. And with Elaine, it's the love of my life. And I know that the people that, you know, are, are listening and involved in this program understand that it's painful and it, it's terribly painful. And there is nothing, I think, that can prepare you for that. And so because I know uh, nothing can prepare you for that. I want to get back to say if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of Alzheimer's is worse. And so do yourself a favor and try and learn to understand the disease so that you can do a better job of feeling comfortable with yourself and comfortable with the fact that you're trying to help this person with dementia with, with every talent that you have. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one other point I want to mention. I mentioned my uh, going to counseling. And uh, I had to say, I, some days I don't want to see Elaine and, and I feel guilty. I just, I just don't want to go. Yeah. Well, the person said, good. And I said, what do you mean, good? Well, it was pointed out to me that a person with dementia is so much in tune to the very moment, the very present. And they are so sensitive and understanding of feelings that with that then, uh, being so understanding and sensitive, if I go there and I'm feeling anxiety and nervousness, Elaine picks that up. And so where my goal was to make Elaine happy and comfortable and relaxed, I was doing just completely the opposite. Huh. And that took away so much pressure and, mm -hmm. and, and made me feel so much better. And now I still try and see her every day, but if, if, if I get to the point where I say, wait a minute, that it's not going to be a good day, that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I don't know if I mentioned when I said that's okay. I have four children and all of them handle this different, mm -hmm. and that's okay. They also know that their mother no longer exists, mm -hmm. and they know that this is a completely different person, and they may handle it 
differently and, and react to it in a manner which, which I may not think is the traditional way of doing it. But the fact of the matter is they're going through the grieving. They're going through all of the things that you go through when you lose a loved one and still uh, knowing that that person is still there and many times feeling guilty of not knowing what to do or, or just not wanting to confront the situation. Mm-hmm. And so uh, those are things that one learns along. And if I would have known things sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, you have four kids, right? Just, yeah. And what are their age range? Two boys and two girls. And well, what are their age ranges? Yeah, two boys. Well, the, the oldest is uh, 55 and uh-huh. the youngest is 42. And how old is Elaine now? 77. Okay. 77. You wrote in your book, I still love her, of course, but in, in a quite different way. How do you love her now versus before? Uh, I would say that it's a difference between a love for a woman of your life uh, versus the love for a four-year-old. Huh. And uh, not to be demeaning to Elaine under any circumstances, but the conversation, the intellect, the interest, the observance, and so forth, are as if it would be a young child. Mm-hmm. And a young child who wants to look at different things and touch different things and not understand just exactly what what is going on, it's a different kind of love. And I don't know if I mentioned, but when I do have moments when I'm not feeling sorry for myself, and, and I work at that quite hard, I say, wait a minute, I'm pretty fortunate. Because how many people have a chance to love their wife in two different ways and to exchange you know, those kinds of feelings in quite a different manner? And so I do at times look at this as being just a, a wonderful kind of blessing to, to be able to have this, this wonderful person be always so kind and, and so gracious. Mm-hmm. And what's a good day for you? And how do you take care of yourself? Well, a good day for me is to, um, I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and, uh, I catch, catch my, well, that's just normal. That's my, that's my clock. What time do you go to bed? Well, seven o'clock, seven 30. Okay. So I do my computer uh, work and and so forth. And I watch the morning news and Mm -hmm. you look at the newspapers and try and have breakfast with a friend or, or business acquaintance. And then by that time it gets to be pretty close to 10 o'clock. I then go and visit Elaine. And uh, depending upon the activities of the time, uh, we may go for a walk, which she loves doing. Uh, We may go out for lunch together. They generally have a live music performer. Uh, One day a week, we go listen to that. Mm -hmm. And then I have to explain that I have to go to Madison to meet with legislators. And she understands that. And she says, okay. Uh, You know, and I say, well, I'll see you in a little bit. And so my good days are going for a walk with Elaine and just, listening to her talk and how big the trees are and how beautiful the flowers are and how much her parents like me because she told them about me <laughs> and and just it's a very so sweet. surface kind of conversation there's we're beyond who's president and we're beyond what day it is and we're beyond what season it is right. and we're beyond what christmas may or may not mean we're just two souls together mm-hmm. and i want to tell you there's something to be said for that mm-hmm. this past christmas elaine knew every single Christmas carol that would have been sung, you know, for her 77 years of life Hmm. and mine. And Mm -hmm. so, but she didn't know what Christmas was really. And she didn't know about the presents. She didn't know about the Christmas cards. And so there were no presents. There were no Christmas cards. And it could have been one of the finest Christmases of my life because there was just the two of us. 
And when I say just the two of us, a wonderful, caring person who was comfortable with life and, and, and comfortable with herself. And then there was me no longer having to worry about all of the things a person worries about at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. And I could focus my full attention on our relationship and on our communication, on our holding of hands. And I look at that and I say that, you know, I, I don't know if I had a Christmas that was as heartwarming as this past Christmas was. And I mentioned that again. To have caregivers understand that there can be moments of joy if you understand the disease. And, you know, if I would have gotten involved in talking with Elaine about the fact that the words to Silent Night are just not exactly the way she sang it, or, you know, here's your Christmas present, and have her look at it and not understand what it was for or why it was there, or to talk about Christmas cards from whomever and and so forth. No, we stripped all of that away and entering her world, we had a... We had a wonder, and I try and do that every time we are together. Mm-hmm. I know that you have a public affairs consulting business now. How has your experience with Elaine influenced your attitude toward your employees who are facing a similar situation, maybe? Well, first of all, I'm so fortunate that my partners understood what I was going through. Mm-hmm. And uh, because they understood that, they made less demands of me and understood that I was being a caregiver. And they also understood how I was uh, becoming more reclusive. And also there is a a period of time that I went through called irrational irritability, Mm -hmm. my words. When a person feels trapped, you become so susceptible to interpreting people's words or thoughts as being an attack or being insulting. And so my demeanor changed during the course of my caregiving, and I think I'm getting more back to normal. Mm -hmm. But my partners were able to take over what I was doing, and that made a big difference. And this is so important. When I say Alzheimer's is bad, but ignorance is worse, employers have to understand what their employee might be going through if they are a caregiver or what the employee might be going through if they have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And in Wisconsin, we're working on what would be called a dementia-friendly workplace, where if an employer can understand that there is a caregiver who's trying to keep the job, trying to meet the family budget, trying to make sure they get to work on time, trying to take care of someone, that that employer may say, well, you know, how can we help you? Uh, Will it make a difference if we can give you a room alone for half an hour to make phone calls? Would it help you if we can readjust your schedule and so forth? I was fortunate because I had partners that could take care of my business. I was fortunate because Elaine was always gracious. I was fortunate because I'm financially secure. And I was fortunate in so many ways that I began to think about people who don't have the kinds of situation I have, and my heart goes out to them. And it goes out to them because if you have to worry about your budget and your job, and at the same time worry about taking care of a person with dementia with the constant asking of questions and the misplacement of items around the house and, and maybe even some, some anger at times and so on, if you have to deal with all that, I don't know how caregivers do it. And that's why I call caregivers heroes and why I say they're awesome people and why I say they need affirmation of what they are doing and just outstanding admiration for doing the kind of job that takes your your heart away and sometimes eats at your soul. Is that dementia-friendly legislation that you're working toward, uh, since you brought that up, I wondered if you could speak to this issue of caregiver support in the legislation. Is this something that you think the states are going to have to figure out on their own because we're not going to get guidance from the federal government? 
What is your view of how policies can be created around these really important issues? That is an excellent question. They say that we should have a cure for Alzheimer's by the year 2025. So if you can imagine, Hmm. eight more years. And there was an article in, in the newspaper out of Los Angeles about Alzheimer's becoming a tsunami. And it's going to cost our country, our states, Medicare, Medicaid, hundreds of millions of dollars as they might seek to help take care of a person with dementia. It's going to cost a lot more if the caregiver dies early of a heart attack or some other kind of illness. So somehow or another, we've got to increase the amount of money that's going for research for the cure of Alzheimer's. And in that regard also, they are also short uh, clinical trials. And if anyone hearing this wants to advance uh, and make close to the timeline for the cure, they may want to sign up for being involved in a, in a clinical survey or a clinical study mm-hmm. because they also need that. But then we need to bring some attention to the United States Congress. Now, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin has introduced legislation to try and inquire about the kinds of things that might be done for caregivers mm-hmm. to help them along the way. And we've just got to come up with the kinds of information which I know is there about the cost of Alzheimer's if you cure it versus the cost of Alzheimer's if you don't cure it. And hopefully that will make people aware. It would be my hope we wouldn't have to fight this on a state-by-state basis because, you know, how long does it take to get each state to wrap its hands around this issue? And maybe we have to work at doing both at the same time. They say that the states are sort of a, you know, a trial area for some of these solutions and There could be maybe some states that try a little bit something different and maybe they're going to refine what kinds of programs could best be suited for, you know, the caregiver as well as the person with dementia. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to keep you for much longer. You've just been so generous with your time. I wondered if you have any last thoughts around this and perhaps you could offer what one piece of advice would you give to family members or friends caring for people living with Alzheimer's? Get help. As soon as you have an understanding of the diagnosis, uh, look to the Alzheimer's Association. And again, their number is 800-272-3900. But after you get help and, and place that call, then try and learn about the disease and learn the importance of how you should be entering their world, how you should look at and understanding the importance of therapeutic fibbing and also understanding <laughs> that uh, you can't argue with Alzheimer's. And so, oh, we have a website also called My Two Elaines, mm-hmm. and it's all one word, My Two Elaines. But uh, I'm going to take a moment and read you oh, uh, I love a that. poem that's in, in, the, in the back of the book by Tara Reed. If you listen to this poem, I couldn't get through it eight or nine times with, without, without tearing up. But what this poem does for me is just try and give you a feeling of what a person with dementia feels and it goes, well, here, let me just read. Go ahead, uh, please. Talk too. to me. It begins, talk to me. I can hear your words, and they still touch my soul. Smile at me. My eyes can see you and feel your heart, even if I don't remember how to smile back. Hold my hand. I can feel your energy when our hands connect. It makes me feel safe and less alone. Love me. My heart can feel your love, even if my words can't express mine. Live your life. Help me on my path, but don't press pause on your life. Be the vibrant person I know and love. Trust the process. I know this is hard, 
and not what we planned, but trust the process. We can't control it, but we can choose our focus. Remember the good times. Know that I am okay and that you are in my heart always. Mm. And I think that poem just sort of gives to me an understanding about knowing that even though she may not know who I am, our hearts can still touch. Mm -hmm. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. But also understand that the person with dementia wants their caregiver to also have a life and to go on and and make a difference either with the family or with, with friends and so forth. So I thank you. I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to visit and talk about this issue. And, and it's just so important that we try and do what we can to help caregivers learn, cope, and survive. That was former Governor Martin Schreiber reading from his book. The poem he was reading is called If Alzheimer's Could Speak. It's by Tara Reed. It's at the back of his book. And Martin J. Schreiber, his book written with Kathy Breitenbutcher is called My Two Elaines, Learning, Coping, and Surviving as an Alzheimer's Caregiver. Net proceeds from the sales are being used to promote Alzheimer's caregiver support programs. We're going to have links on the AgeWise website to the book as well as Governor Schreiber's recent writings. Martin Schreiber, thank you so much for being on the show and for your candid writing on this subject. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It's much needed and it's just a breath of fresh air. Thank you so much. I'm grateful. Thank you very much. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you don't want to miss any episodes, visit the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com and subscribe to the podcast. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. If you'd like to be on the show or just tell us what you think about it, send an email to Jenna at AGEWYZ.com. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Mm-hmm.